Strange Brew Podcast, Season 1, Episode 99. Have to do something special maybe for the 100th on Monday. Maybe we'll win our bets. Maybe that'll be what we do special. That's what we're going to do. We're going to win all of our bets. And that'll be special for Episode number 100. Yeah, Episode 99, heading into Packer Home Opener Weekend. Will Aaron Jones play? Will Christian Watson play? What's the deal with all the hamstring injuries? David Bakhtiari in the headlines again as he talked to the media on Thursday about whether or not he is secretly protesting playing on turf. We'll break all of that down, get it set for Packers and Saints. It is the Lambeau Field home opener. Badgers, Big Ten opener at the reigning Big Ten West champion, Purdue Boilermakers. Badgers are six-point favorites. I don't know if we're touching that. And we are going to dive into a lot of Brewers stuff. What a week it was. I went to dark places on Monday when they lost in St. Louis to Adam Wainwright. Wainwright's career victory, number 200. My brain started spinning, and it got ugly, but then they turned it around. Three out of four in St. Louis. The Cubs are collapsing. They could clinch the division today. The over on season wins hit. That was good news. We'll get after it. Let's go. On the ground, a chance here. Durham to Hardy to first. In time! Yes! The Brewers yes! win! Yes! Here comes Melvin to the 25, to the 20, Gordon 15, 10, 5, touchdown! Wisconsin, record-breaking run! Morgan, a smash up the middle, He looks, he throws, it's incomplete, and there is your Super Bowl dagger! Booker the drive, gets inside, leads in, knocked away and stolen by Holiday! Phoenix has to foul, on a pinnacle foul, throws it down! Swinging fly ball in the right center, Broxton is there! We've got a room at the top of the world tonight. The Milwaukee Bucks are NBA champions. Real quick before we talk about the Brewers and the stadium and how they performed in St. Louis here, I've got to do a quick birthday shout out to my father-in-law, Jerry. He is, he listens to, I think, every podcast. He pushes the podcast. We were getting dinner somewhere or a get-together, I think, a week or two ago, and we were chatting. He said, I think I'm your biggest supporter on the podcast in terms of getting it out there. He is, and it is his birthday today. Special podcast birthday shout-out to Jerry. Yeah, a lot of Brewer stuff in the news, not just the team and the way they're playing and how close they are now to a division championship. The stadium conversation shifted into overdrive, it felt like, over the course of the week, and... No doubt, it led to a lot of screaming at each other in comment sections on Facebook and on Twitter or X or whatever you want to call it. I always think of this Kramer scene like an umpire and a manager. Like a manager and an umpire. People just going after it. There's people going crazy about, we don't want to pay any money and taxpayers shouldn't fund millionaires and billionaires, side projects and all that kind of stuff. It's it's going to happen. The lease ends in 2030 for AmFam Field. At some point, they're going to get a deal done. I talked about this on the B93 Morning Show, and I know we have a lot of folks that listen to that morning show, working class, certainly putting in 60 hours a week that don't think any of their money should go to millionaires and billionaires, and certainly we all understand that, and we've all understood that for decades. But this is going to end the same way every one of these stadium debates ends. 
It's going to end up being whatever it is, $600 or $700 million. The Brewers, it sounds like, with this new plan that the GOP, the state GOP put together, which was produced or introduced at AmFam Field, which means to me it has tacit approval from the Brewers' side of things. I don't know if it'll get passed or if this is the final version of what we're going to see, but it's going to end with a six or $700 million invoice and the brewers it sounds like are willing to pay 100 or 125 million but like with all of these things 80 percent or 75 percent is going to come from the taxpayers it's going to be the same thing that happened when miller park was built and whatever when that was passed in the mid to late 90s it's going to be the same story that it was when pfizer forum got passed it's going to be the same story it was when lambeau field needed renovations and then lambeau field built up that district outside of it it's always going to be that way and i understand the optics of it of Joe taxpayer who's many times working paycheck to paycheck having to put money into millionaires and billionaires and you see the contracts these athletes are signing and you see how much money the owners are making and when you're paycheck to paycheck or you're just trying to pay the bills every week I certainly understand why that doesn't look good and doesn't sound good and is confusing for a lot of people out there and they get angry about it And that's fine. If you're angry about it, you're angry about it. I'm just telling you, this is going to end the same way it always ends. And it's probably going to end with Milwaukee County footing a lot of the bill. Maybe it's going to go to the five-county area again. Maybe there will be some kind of state tax. Just like when Miller Park passed, though, it's going to end up probably being 10 ish dollars a year for the taxpayers. Again, I get that some people are going to hear that and say, I don't care if it's $10. I don't care if it's $100. I don't care if it's $0.05. None of my money should be going to this. That's fine. You can feel that way, but the, but I hate to break it to you. That's exactly what's going to happen. Whether the GOP version is going to be the final version of this thing, I have no idea whether they'll be negotiating on certain things. Maybe the Brewers will end up paying more. The Brewers are going to try to pay as little as possible. Maybe they end up paying more by the end of it. And it is important to remind people that they don't even own the stadium That argument from taxpayers not wanting to pay for any of this and saying, why can't the billionaires just pay for it? Well, they don't really own it. They own the team. Atanasio's own the team. Milwaukee County owns Miller Park and now AmFam Field. Even though Atanasio's worth what? Over a billion dollars or close to it? And he certainly could pay for all this in some form, way, shape, or form. If you rented a place, which is what the Atanasios and the Brewers do, they rent the park from Milwaukee County. If I were renting an apartment, even if I had the money to fix the roof, if I had that kind of money in my bank account, the roof is going bad on the apartment complex. Could I pay for it in a hypothetical world where I win all my bets? Sure. Am I going to? Nope. I want the landlord to pay for it because that's what I pay rent for. But at some point, we're going to get to the end of this, and they're going to end up staying well past 2030. I don't think they're going anywhere. It's just a lot of political posturing right now, and the deal's going to get done. I think the interesting sub-conversation this week has revolved around how do you make AmFam Field and the area around it look a little different? If we're going to be spending 600 or 700 or $800 million over the course of 20 years, it seems foolish for everything to look the same with the exception of Sealing the roof, getting those leaks taken care of. That I did have to laugh at this week. There was a huge story on WISN Channel 12 in Milwaukee that whatever home game before they hit the road in St. Louis, maybe it was this past Saturday or Friday or this past Sunday, and the roof was leaking. It was raining, and the roof was leaking, and all of a sudden that became headline news. Oh, my God, the roof is leaking. 
no surprise that that becomes a major news story in a year, in a news cycle where the Brewers and the County and the Atnazios are trying to get improvements and pass this almost billion-dollar bill through for improvements and fixing AmFam Field. They acted like that was a new thing. Oh, my God, the roof is leaking. We need help now. First of all, get some flex seal up there. Bingo, bango, the whole situation is resolved. Also, the roof has leaked since literally, literally since day one. I remember that in 2002 or 01 when it opened, the first time there was a major rainstorm, it was leaking then, and it has always had areas where it leaked. It was just interesting the way they spun that like it was new news to make it look like the stadium was crumbling, the infrastructure was decrepit, and we need this money now more than ever. They really postured that. They positioned it well. I do enjoy that sub-conversation, though, of how do you get more entertainment and maybe make that thing a year-round area or event area or event center. They did say in that GOP bill that they were going to try to winterize the stadium so you could use it year-round or have concerts there year-round or other sporting events there year-round. I have no idea what winterizing an entire baseball stadium looks like, but I'm very curious to see how they would do it. That was a part of the conversation, but the larger part was look at what Pfizer Forum did with the Deer District and building that up right outside of the arena and the restaurants and the bars and how much fun people have there. And what the Deer District morphed into during the title run. Lambeau Field basically took the script from Pfizer Forum and the Bucks, which is rarely the case in Wisconsin sports, that the Packers take a Bucks idea. They did then the same thing right outside of Lambeau Field. Those renovations happened in 03 or 04. Then they built up in the last two or three years the area around it. I was thinking of Mark, Mark Murphy going down the slide. He looks like a 10-year-old going down that slide and all that area across the street and hinterland brewing and all that stuff. How do you incorporate that into AmFam Field and the area around AmFam Field? It seems logical that they would do that. Now, Rick Schlesinger, who is the VP of marketing or something with the Brewers, he's always the guy they interview during TV broadcasts about what the promotional items, what bobbleheads are coming up this weekend. Come on out. we got tickets on sale, blah, blah, blah. He's always the front for things like this. And after the GOP presented their plan, he did a bunch of interviews in a press conference. That question was posed to him. In what way could we put a beer district or something like that similar to Pfizer Forum, similar to Lambo? How could we do that? And he sort of gave you the Matumbo no, 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 because his argument was how respectful they are of tailgate culture and how that's a huge part of Brewer baseball, and they don't want to disrupt that. Okay. I mean, I get it. I understand where he's coming from and how tailgating is ingrained in Brewer culture. And if I were somebody who was not a Brewer fan and I were coming to AmFam Field as a part of a stadium tour or just trying to visit for the first time, certainly if that were the instance, I would want to tailgate because that's all I've heard about the Brewers. I have to check out this tailgating. As someone who's grown up in southeastern Wisconsin and gone to hundreds of Brewer games, can I just say, should I whisper this part? Tailgating is overrated. Is that crazy? If I were to say that, would you take that seriously? Would that be it for us as a podcast listener relationship? I like a tailgate every once in a while. As I've gotten older, especially though, I don't know. I can't even tell you the last time I tailgated. You got to pack everything up, and then you got to get there an hour and a half early. Then you got to unpack everything, and then you always forget something. Then you got to walk around and see if someone can loan you a lighter or, or has matches or charcoal or whatever. You get the table set up. You get the chairs out. It's 85 degrees. You're dripping sweat and sitting on the hot pavement. I don't know, man. I appreciate a good tailgate every once in a while. I can't even tell you the last time my wife and I tailgated, probably five or six years ago. 
And while I get that it is a part of the culture of Brewer baseball, and I understand him, Rick Schlesinger, wanting to defend that, how many people do you think are actually tailgating, Rick? When you walk into a game or you're in a parking lot and you're walking into the stadium, let's say there's a 40,000-seat sold game near a sellout. How many of those 40,000 are actually actively tailgating? 30% more? Would you say half? I think half is probably too high. But even half, if it, even if it's 50% of the 40,000 people that are actually out there with the grills and the Smoky Joes and getting after it and playing bags and whatever, even if it's half, you could still get rid of two of those parking lots. There's way too much parking. You could easily get rid of two of those and put something there, something that would be a restaurant or a bar or a pro shop or whatever. Maybe you could utilize more of the space that's closer to Ampan Field or there's that abandoned warehouse. I forget the name of the company. There's a massive plot of land that's right behind parking by the Euchre lot that hasn't been used for anything. Maybe you could build that up, and that's still somewhat in walking distance to Amfan Field. There is a solution here. I don't like how dismissive he was about trying to do something different. I have to admit, whatever, we're going to pay whatever taxes would be required of me. I will be paying, I'm sure. It does seem... Not the smartest if you're just going to put a $750 million bill out there and all it's going to go to is small repairs or upkeep at Ampan Field and everything's going to stay the same. For that amount of money, which is basically almost the amount of money for a new stadium, that's been broached too. I've seen that conversation now too. If we're going to put a $750 million bill out there, why not just build a whole new stadium and move it closer to downtown and there's this site you could go to and that site you could go to. I don't think they're moving it at all, but... It does seem stupid to do this and then not have anything added there where the franchise could make money or the county could make money or however all that stuff works to build up a little bit of an area around Amfam Field that's not necessarily 1,000% locked in on tailgate culture. I didn't like how he just batted that away or scoffed at it like, oh, we're not going to argue with tailgate culture. Well, I don't know how many people are really tailgating, Rick. We all like a good tailgate. I don't know how many people are showing up as season ticket holders and tailgating 81 games a year, you know? Anyway, let's talk about the actual team. What a week. I had to say on the air on Monday that I was in a dark place on Monday. I was after that game, so it must have been Tuesday morning on the morning show. Going into Monday, the Brewers had a six-game lead with 12 games left. The math certainly in their favor. It would have taken an extraordinary collapse for them not to win the division. Unfortunately, as a Wisconsin sports fan, I am well-conditioned and always on the lookout for extraordinary collapses. And even though the Cardinals have been mop water the entire year, which you hate to see. You just hate to see. It couldn't happen to a better fan base. They're dead last. They never made their run. How that's possible, I have no idea. Their pitching has been atrocious this year. You still have Goldschmidt and Arenado in the middle of that lineup, though, and they have not suffered too many injuries this year offensively. With those two guys in the middle of a lineup, you feel like you should get to 80 wins at least or try to be on the fringe of a playoff spot. They just have never gotten it together this year. Even with all of that knowledge going in, I am always unsettled going to St. Louis in September because for most of my life, it has always been the Cardinals that have ended what I thought were going to be magical seasons. The Cardinals or maybe more recently the Dodgers. Mostly the Cardinals, though. So even though they've been bad, I see a four-game set in St. Louis. And then on Monday, I looked at the Cubs' schedule. They had off on Monday. Then you see the Cubs, starting on Tuesday, have three at home against the Pirates, that are who are a bad team. Then they've got three at home against the Rockies, who are our last-place team. They go out on Monday, Adam Wainwright on the hill, dead last place team. Wainwright has been limping his way to career victory number 200. He was going to retire last year. I'm pretty sure he came back. I'm sure he came back 
to help the team and think that they were going to win the division, which they were favorites for, or close to favorites for. I think going into the year, it was the Brewers were the odds-on favorites, but then right behind him were the Cardinals, not that far off. I'm certain he thought he was going to be helpful in a division title chase or a playoff chase. I also think he knew how close he was to victory number 200 and thought, eh, five wins, may as well come back for one more year, try to win five games and reach that milestone. Not many people have. He came into Monday, though, with four wins on the year and an ERA of eight. He's 42 years old. He's throwing 85-mile-an-hour fastballs at this point in his career. And all of that on the paper, all of that on paper with the last-place team and how bad he's been. Then, of course, like we said on Friday's podcast, I bet he's going to go out there and give seven innings of one-run ball. He was actually better than that, John, Friday, John. He was better than that. Seven innings of shutout ball. He was a wizard up there. It looked like 2006 Adam Wainwright, dazzling Brewer hitters. They get one home run from Wilson Contreras, former Cub, and they win one nothing. And I start to think... Don't let this happen. (laughs) Don't let this happen. That's when I start to travel down bad paths mentally of another season is going to start to unravel in St. Louis, and there's no way the Cubs don't go five and one on that homestand, and this six-game lead could be down to a two-game lead by Sunday or a one-game lead by Sunday. And on Tuesday's morning show, I was doing this really sad choose-your-own-adventure segment, and I have to give credit to the text line. We had a few people text in and say, Dude, just calm down. They're going to be fine. They're going to be okay. It's okay. They're going to win a few of these games. The magic number is going to go down. Don't worry about it. This team is going to be just fine. This Cardinals team is bad. They'll find a way. And even though I don't know that I believe that on Tuesday, I do appreciate that someone was there to pick me up. Because typically, I am the annoyingly optimistic, over-the-top, nothing-can-go-wrong-for-my-team kind of guy. And in that moment, I needed to be picked up. And the text line picked me up. Normally, they knock me down. But this time they picked me up. And then the Brewers did turn it around. And then the Cubs also is another part of this whole week. They have just fallen apart. But the Brewers, the bigger story, they come back on Tuesday, get a win, although they were down 2-0. And then I was even further down the domino chain of darkness. They lose to Adam Wainwright on Monday. Then they're down 2-0 in the first inning on Tuesday when they went with the Trevor McGill opener. I'm thinking, oh, my God, oh, my God, oh, my God. They got up off the deck, though. Contreras goes yard. You get the four doubles in a row in the fourth inning. They get in front. They get the win. Then they go out and get a win on Wednesday. Then they go and get a win yesterday, a 6 nothing win. They hit the over. Cue the Ted DiBiase. The over on season wins, which was at 85 and a half. Oh, yeah. We didn't have to sit in suspense. Everybody's got a prize. This is one of the all-time wrestling Everybody's <laughs> old-school intros. Cue the Ted DiBiase laugh. There's the million dollar man. Always gets his way. (laughs) That cackle is one of the all-time great cackles ever. They go over on 85 and a half, and we didn't have to wait that long. We did not have to wait until the end of the year. When I placed that bet, I kind of thought, given the way last year ended, this may be a situation where I'm sweating things out final series of the year. We got this with time to spare. They get to 86 wins. By the way... When they got to victory number 86 and they hit the over on season win total, Mike Vassallo had a stat on his Twitter that the Brewers, if you take the pandemic year out of it, because you have to, if you take that year out of it, the Brewers have now had six consecutive seasons where they've had at least 86 wins or more. Really think about that. If I could travel back in time into 1997 or 98 or 99 or 2000 or any one of those terrible years, 2001, 2000, they were all bad. And tell 14-year-old Jonathan with his cheese head on and his Brett Favre jersey. And I could tell him that in the future, 
This Brewer team that you love is going to have six straight years where they are 86 wins or better, and they're going to make the playoffs seemingly every year. He wouldn't believe it. He just wouldn't take it serious. He'd laugh like Ted DiBiase. just laughed. He'd cackle. That's going to happen. There's no way that's going to happen. Only one other team in that window, 2017 through 2023, take the pandemic year out. Only one other team has been able to achieve that. 86 wins or better for all those years. You know what it is? The Los Angeles Dodgers. Now, do you think there's a little bit of a discrepancy between the talent and the money that the Dodgers have spent over those six years to get to that milestone and what the Brewers have been able to do? This just further backs up my thought that Craig Council is the best manager the Brewers have ever had. And if you think otherwise, you're wrong. And if you want to be wrong and you want to say that out loud and just be wrong out loud, by all means, I'm not here to tell you how to live your life or tell you what to do. Craig Council is the best manager the Brewers have ever had. I get that Harvey Keene got them to the World Series. I mean, I'm pretty sure he was fired a year later or two years later. Craig Council is the best. He's going to have his moments. He's going to pull a starter too early or leave him in too late or put the wrong bullpen guy in. That's baseball, babe. There are 1,500 innings in a season, in a standard season, not, not counting extra innings. If your expectation that he's going to make all the perfect pitching decisions and all the perfect lineup decisions for every one of those 1,500 innings, that expectation bar may be a little high. Just reading that stat, 86 wins or better for six straight years, five of those they've made the playoffs, and it's soon to be six out of seven to make the playoffs. There's nobody better. There is just nobody better. And when you compare what he's been able to do with the talent level and the payroll, where the Dodgers have a payroll, 275, 300, 325, and the Brewers are sitting in that 90 to 110, maybe 120, 125 on a good year, and to have the same success, regular season success, that the Dodgers have had, it just further proves that Craig Council is the best the Brewers have ever had. And what he does at the end of the year, we still don't know. That really has cranked up now as we've, we're now down to the end of the year, basically the regular season. What is he going to do with his lame duck status? Is he going to come back? Is he going to leave to watch his kids play baseball? Would the Brewers do something? And I think they could do this, where Craig Council is so well-respected that if he says to the Brewers, you know what, I want to be a family guy, I got – there's a Peter Griffin drop we can throw in there. I want to be a family man, and I want to watch my kids play college basketball. His son Jack played for the Sheboygan A's a little bit this summer too. I want to see them play baseball for a while and just be a family man for a while and just do that for a summer or two. The Brewers may well say – this is how good counsel is and how well-respected he is. The Brewers may say, okay – Pat Murphy is going to be our head coach then for the next two seasons, and when you're ready, you come right back. I could see them doing that. There was a rumor, there was a John Heyman rumor on Twitter that maybe he would follow David Stearns to New York. I just don't see it. Maybe it happens. I mean, you never say never. My thought is one of two things will happen. He is either going to leave permanently and just watch his kids play baseball and step aside, and maybe he comes back at some point or maybe he doesn't, or he is going to sign an extension. I just don't see him managing any team other than the Brewers. And you hope that he's back. If they win the World Series, let's live in that world. You know what? As long as we're playing scenarios out, let's live in that world. Why not? Because this is all hypothetical anyway, right? If they win the World Series, I think he retires and he's done. I think he doesn't come back. Maybe because he's still kind of young. I guess I could see a scenario where he does that and then he gets the itch in seven or eight years or six years down the road. I think if they win the World Series and he brings the title, first ever title, back to his hometown team, and he's kind of thinking about stepping away for a while anyway, if they win it all, I think that's it. I think you ride out into the sunset as high as high can get, and that would be it for the council era. And I don't think anybody could begrudge him that. If he brings the title back, he can do whatever the hell he wants. It is amazing, though, to read that stat that Vasallo tweeted out of how consistently good they have been. 
And they exercised the demons in St. Louis in September. I put this in the blog on Wednesday. This is I'm so happy I found this clip. I have exercised the demons. Well, Ace Ventura. This house is clear. <laughs> Exercise the demons in St. Louis. That was exciting to be a part of this week, too, where not only are you getting closer to a division title, you were able to avoid that mousetrap in St. Louis that typically gets you every time this time of year. Now, the Cubs lose two out of three to Pittsburgh. They may not be in the playoffs. Right now, they are tied with the Marlins for the final playoff spot, that last wild card spot. That last wild card spot, that's going to be the matchup of the Brewers. The magic number is two. Any combo of Brewer wins and Cubs losses, two gets the Brewers the division. The division's a wrap. It's just a matter of time. It's not if, but when. The Brewers will be the three seed. There's no way they can catch the two seed. Believe me, I've looked at that a lot in the last week or two. Well, if you win 11 or 12 straight, (laughs) the Dodgers collapse a bit, and they lose six or seven in a row. There's just way too big of a gap there. I think they're eight games back of that two seed, which means they'll be playing in the opening round. The first two seeds get a bye. And then the three seed will play the six seed, and the two other wild cards, the four and five, will match up. Right now, the Brewers will play eventually that sixth seed, whether that's the Diamondbacks or the Marlins or the Cubs. We'll see. Who would you want there? The way the Cubs are playing, I wouldn't mind seeing the Cubs. They couldn't be any further down, but baseball's a weird sport, and I live in fear. If that's the matchup, I live in fear of the Cubs coming into AmFam Field with all those drunk, obnoxious Cubs fans, and it's going to be a 50-50 split crowd if that's the case. And if they win that, I don't know if that gets – I don't know if that supersedes game 163 in terms of what we could use for trash talk. Do you think it would? If the Cubs come into AmFam Field and they win that wild card series, does that erase that success of game 163? Because like we talked about on the Packer-Bear Countdown podcast, Packer fans always have that NFC Championship game for trash talk fodder in their back pocket. I kind of feel like even though the Cubs won a World Series, I get it. I kind of feel like Brewers fans have a little bit of that too with that game 163 win in 2018 that robbed the division title from the Cubs. Would that then flip if the Cubs were able to come in and win the wild card round? I just don't want those Cubs fans at AmFam Field. I don't really want it. I want the Marlins. I think that's the best matchup. Which leads to an interesting weekend because the Brewers play the Marlins. Cubs have the Rockies at home. If the Marlins win a few of these games, that would put them in a better position to set up a 3-6 matchup where it would be Brewers and Marlins at AmFam Field. Baseball's quirky. Anything could happen. That's the matchup I like the most. I don't want to see Arizona. I'd rather see the Cubs than Arizona. And we've talked about that. That Merrill Kelly, Zach Gallen, one-two punch for the Diamondbacks, I think is as good as any one-two in baseball. And in a short series, in a best-of-three series, I would prefer not to have the Diamondbacks coming for that. I'd prefer the Cubs. That's how I'd power rank it. Marlins, then Cubs, then Diamondbacks, if I could choose the opponent. Uh, The Brewers will continue on in Miami, first of three starting tonight. They've got their big three going. Corbin Burns tonight, Woodruff going on Saturday, and on Sunday it will be Freddie Peralta. Wade Miley was tremendous, 9-4 and record now. His ERA is a little over three. They've been doing this all without Yelly, too. It's been fascinating. Yelly carried this team on his back offensively, and it literally broke his back. (laughs) It maybe broke his back. Yelly hit 284 in the month of May. Hit 320 in the month of June, hit 334 in the month of July, kind of fell off toward August. I think he ended August hitting 250 in that month, and then the back became an issue, which now it seems likely that had been an issue probably for a week or two at the end of August, and that's what sidelined him now for about a week. And they're not putting him on the IL yet. Maybe he makes his return at his old stomping grounds in Miami tonight. Yelly, though, was the only guy who had things going offensively for a while. Then he goes on the shelf, and now the team feels like it's clicking a bit offensively. Contreras has been as steady as anybody in that two-hole. 
Canna's been tremendous. We've seen Monasterio step in. In Monasterio, we talked about that lineup about a week or two ago. I don't mind it where they have Donaldson, who had another home run, big home run in Wednesday's win. Donaldson at third, Monasterio at second. You lose a little bit defensively going from Terang to Monasterio. Not a ton at second base. You do gain offense, though. Monasterio is hitting about 270, and Terang's still in that 220-225 range. They've been going with that lineup and have been most of the week in St. Louis. They resume the road trip, final road trip of the year, first of three in Miami tonight. Then you return home for a six-game homestand to end the regular season Cardinals and then Cubs. It looks very likely that that Cubs series is going to mean nothing at the end of the year as this has become a boat race now. They have an eight-game lead in the division. You love to see it. File that under things you love to see. Let's talk about Badger football real quick. I mean, not a ton to add to what we already talked about on Monday. It's the Big Ten opener. It's another chance for Luke Fickle in the Fickle era to make a statement. So far, we've had three Christian games. We've had three games that have followed the Paul Christ script, although they did cover. They got that cover of 20 points, winning by 21 the last time out. Uninspiring, though, pretty much all the way around with that win on Saturday against Georgia Southern, especially when you were down 14-7 in the third quarter. Braylon Allen had some weird comments again this week. We've been going over this on the podcast. They had the talk. That was a large topic of conversation the prior week leading into Georgia Southern. There was some long meeting between Fickle and Braylon Allen coming out of the Washington State game where he only had seven carries for 20 yards and had almost zero impact. Negligible negligible, negligible impact on that game. Try again. Give me three takes. I can say any word. I've always said that. Then they had the talk. And we said on the podcast, I don't think it was a bad talk. I just think it's a talk where you have your most talented skill player and he's not doing a whole lot. And you say, okay, how do we figure you out? How do we utilize you in this new air raid, Phil Longo, dairy raid offense? How do we best get you going? Then he didn't play much in the first half against Georgia Southern. He had one touch, which in the moment led me to believe, well, maybe that wasn't just a, (laughs) maybe that wasn't just a, how do we use you more? Maybe there was some disciplinary stuff going on there. Coming out of the Georgia Southern game, Fickle said that Braylon Allen got banged up in practice, and that's why they were limiting his touches. Eventually, he did get involved and had 95 yards and two touchdowns against Georgia Southern. Then I heard those comments and thought, oh, okay, so he got a little banged up. That's why he wasn't getting touches. Then this week, Braylon Allen did an interview with the media, and they asked him about his limited role and how does he get himself going with less reps, and he talked about that. He said, listen, I'm not getting 30 touches a game right now. I've got to find a way to get myself going with fewer touches. That's his goal now for the rest of the year. The follow-up naturally was, well, do you know why you're not getting the touches? And he basically said, not snotty, but he just said, you know, you'd have to ask the coaches. I don't really know why I'm not getting as many touches as I had previously. I don't know. (laughs) I did always wonder. Allen is a more between-the-tackles kind of runner. He's a physical runner. Not that he can't get to the edge and not that he doesn't have speed. Malusi, though, is the type of running back a little smaller, a little slighter in stature. He can get out in space more. He has more wide receiver qualities. When you look at the offense that Phil Longo has run in his career, the air raid, the spread offense, the dairy raid, whatever you want to call it, the Malusi archetype is more... Ooh, archetype. Does that work there? I think it does. Good word. Good. Pat myself on the back for that one. That's a word score. Malusi is the type of back that is best utilized in that offense. Maybe that's why we've seen more of Malusi, and I wondered in the offseason, you've got this treasure, Braylon Allen at running back, who's only 20 years old, or 19, still 19. Remember when he was only 17? I remember. Pepperidge Farm remembers. 
And how do you use him? How do you use that guy in a spread offense? And all offseason, Phil Longo, when they talked about that, said, oh, we're going to find a way. We're going to find a way to utilize a man as talented as Braylon Allen. We'll have to find a way to meld things a little bit as a new coaching staff coming in with some of the leftovers from last year. Allen being one of those and still probably the most talented player on this team on either side of the football at the end of the day. We'll find a way to do it. Well, I'm starting to wonder if they're having a hard time doing that, having a hard time trying to figure out how Allen works in this offense. I don't think it's quite square peg round hole situation yet. Curious, though, to see if he does get more involved tonight. Remember, I had that proclamation heading into Saturday. Last Friday, I said, I think that Braylon Allen will get 15 to 17 touches in the first half as a statement against Georgia Southern. I'm retiring from that. That's not the way things played out. I will be curious to see if they're able to get him more involved tonight. This is a game the Badgers should win. They are six-point favorites on the road. Purdue won the Big Ten West last year. They're down a lot of players, though, primarily their star quarterback, Aiden O'Connell, who is having a pretty good run and generating a lot of conversation in Las Vegas as the backup to Jimmy Garoppolo. Had an excellent preseason, and as they continue to lose games, and they will continue to lose games, you wonder how long you stick with a veteran quarterback like Jimmy G when you're three or four wins or you're three or four games under 500. Why not go to the young quarterback? They are missing him and some skill positions from last year. That said, I had a texter this morning say, are you going to touch the minus six line? And the answer is no. And the reason is, right now, through three games, everything has looked Paul Christie and so far, and that will change. It's changing slower. They are not in the trust tree yet. We're not in the circle of trust. They have not proven anything yet, and until we see a statement game or two in a row where they look more like what we expected them to look going into the year with the Fickle era and the Longo era and all the recruits and transfers and all that stuff, until we see that, if they go out and win tonight by three or four touchdowns and then they beat the hell out of Rutgers next week, then I start to get, as Tony Evers would say, a little more jazzed up heading into the Iowa matchup. You start to gain some trust and momentum. Right now, they are not in the trust tree because we just don't know what to expect, and they've been such slow starters. For that reason, you just don't touch anything gambling line-wise right now. This is a game they should win, though. It is a 6 o'clock kickoff on FS1, I think, tonight. And then we wrap up on the Packers before we'll make some picks. The talk of the week was David Bakhtiario. I forgot to get. Let's see if I can get the audio up here. I did put it on. Well, you know what? I can just go to the pod or go to the blog. We blogged about it on Thursday. The comments that he made after all the conversation this week was that maybe he's protesting playing on turf games. Here's what Bakhtiari had to say in a – he didn't practice, but post-practice interview. Uh, if I wasn't going to play on turf, I'd probably make more of a ruckus. Um, my brother loves drama. And he told me he was going to do it. I'm like, go right ahead. I don't give a shit. Like, Language. I don't care what you do. It's your social media. And uh, no, that was not the reason at all. Uh, I would, if it was going to be, it'd be something, it would definitely be something different. But no, I mean, I clearly have an injury that's been up and dealing with. And I think that like a lot of just journalism, I think anyone here that didn't run with the story, Bob, I don't know if you did or didn't, well, anyone who did should definitely – make sure to right wrongs because if you don't then is that really journalism if it's only just a hot topic or the lowest hanging fruit all right so that those are the comments he's saying no i'm not protesting playing on turf and xyz and that his whole explanation is in there first of all let's start at the end he can spare me and i put this in the blog spare me the bs at the end of that by saying he is owed an apology or a correction from journalists or podcasters or bloggers that ran with that topic you laid out the dots david You were not practicing all week, heading into week two. 
all week long you were talking about how turf is bad and you don't think it's healthy for offensive linemen to be playing on turf. Then Rodgers goes down. All week long he talked about and tweeted about turf, turf, turf. It's bad for players. The NFL needs to address it. Then, before a turf game in week two in Atlanta, he is a surprise inactive, and he was a surprise by any measure, a surprise inactive not playing, and that game is on turf. Then his brother, which is what he's referencing in that conversation, Eric Bakhtiari, when the inactives came out before Sunday's game, and he's on that list, David's on that list, he retweeted that with an image that was basically an F around and find out image. That leads everybody to believe that David Bakhtiari is inactive because it's a turf game and he doesn't like playing on turf anymore. Don't don't get mad at people for connecting the dots that you laid out. You put the dots out. You gave everybody the pen. And then to act put off at the end of it like, oh, my God, I can't believe they were putting all this false information out there. You led them down that path. You led the horse to water. So spare me. The end of that, oh, my God, I, are, is it really journalism if they're not going to make a correction? Shut up. Now, that said, I don't believe he is protesting playing on turf. I know we posited that and threw that out there like everybody was because it was such a curious sequence of events. I do think this is just a continuation of knee swelling or a knee injury. This is frustrating. I think it's just frustrating when you are as outspoken as he is and you're making the money that he is and you're not reliable week in, week out, fan bases are going to get upset. It's probably a vocal minority, and and there are plenty of people that are saying, trade him, cut him, whatever. This is a better Packer team when he's on the field, and the fans are frustrated. I'm sure he's frustrated. I put that in the blog on Thursday. We are so conditioned now in 2023 to athletes tearing their ACLs and then coming back in a year, or in Elton Jenkins' case, less than a year, and they're either as good as they were or are, in some cases, better than they were. For whatever reason, that hasn't gone that way for it hasn't gone that way for David Bakhtiari. David Bakhtiari is like looking back into the past of what ACL injuries used to be. When I was a kid watching football in the early to mid '90s, if a player went down with an ACL injury, it was at least a year and a half, and that player may not come back at all. We have progressed leaps and bounds surgically and rehab-wise of guys getting back from Tommy John surgeries in baseball and ACL surgeries in football where they're getting back to 100% in a year or less. And it happens so often now that we as fans are conditioned to thinking that that's the way it should play out. For whatever reason, and only Bakhtiari and his doctors and the Packer medical staff could explain this, His injury and recovery harkens back to an earlier time in sports in the 70s, 80s, 90s, where ACL injuries were career enders for a lot of guys. I don't know what the issue is, why there's always fluid, why he can't play consistently four or five weeks in a row, but I'm sure he's frustrated too. He has to be. Anybody that's been through an ACL injury or any major injury will tell you how rigorous the recovery is from that. And to go through all that and to three years later not be in a spot where you're out there feeling 100% has to be frustrating. But I do I do get annoyed with the, the comment, especially at the end of that, where he seems to be baiting people into a certain conversation and then getting mad at them when they're taking part in that conversation. That I don't get. He, I'm sure he's frustrated and the fan base is frustrated. As a Packer fan, which I am and you are, I presume, not everyone, but most, listening to this podcast, whatever your feelings are with Bakhtiari and the relationship with Rodgers and the drama, drama, drama and all that stuff, this Packer team is a better team when Bakhtiari is on the field. When he's on the field, he almost always grades out as a top tackle or the top tackle for that week in the NFL. 
as a Packer fan, this team is better when Bakhtiari's on it. And for that reason, I just want him out there as much as he can be because they're a better team when he is. But he did make that comment over the week. That was probably the most talked about little soundbite coming out of the whole week of practice in Green Bay. Is he going to play this week? I have no idea. They had Aaron Jones at practice on Thursday, didn't practice on Wednesday. Christian Watson practiced on Wednesday, didn't practice on Thursday. LaFleur said that was not a setback. That was simply a part of the plan. We'll see on Sunday. I have no inside knowledge. My gut tells me that we are not going to see Aaron Jones or Watson. And one of the reasons is because they have this game on Sunday against the Saints, and then they play on Thursday right away against the Lions. I'm going to guess they're going to give these guys those two games, and then you kind of get a half bye. You get a mini bye week when you have that Thursday game. That would give them then two full weeks until the Week 5 matchup to make sure they're as close to 100% as they can get. I don't expect to see either on there. It would be a pleasant surprise if either Jones or Watson play. Bakhtiari, like always, is going to be a coin flip. Elton Jenkins is not going to play. That's the most concerning part of this matchup to me on Sunday. It's Packers favored by two. It was two and a half. It's down to two. Some books have it down to one and a half. Saints come in 2-0. and oh. Derek Carr has not looked a whole lot better so far this year than he did look in Las Vegas last year. But that Saints defense is pretty good. They're a veteran team, and if they can stay healthy all year, that should be a top 10 defense in the NFL, which is concerning when you're probably not going to have the safety net in Aaron Jones. You're not going to have Watson, and the left side of that line is going to have Rasheed Walker and Royce Newman. Royce Newman graded out okay when he came in on Sunday in pass protection. He was not good in in run scheme. Nobody on the offensive line was. I guess I would be primarily concerned about the left side of that offensive line against a good Saints front seven and a good Saints defense. And you've still got Jordan Love for as good as he's been in many spots. He's making his fifth start. They're going to put a lot of pressure on him. That's my number one concern. And can you get A.J. Dillon going? If you have no Aaron Jones out there, can Dillon take another, well, I don't know if he took a step forward or a step back this past Sunday. Can you get him going where he can be a useful weapon to open things up? That's my number one concern. And then the Packer rush defense is going to have to be good. I don't know how concerned you are with Derek Carr and Chris Olave against that secondary. They don't have a ton of weapons at wide receiver. They also do not have Alvin Kamara until next week. And Jamal Williams... Former Packer, former Lion. He hurt himself last week. He is not going to play on Sunday. So you're going to get a healthy dose of a rookie running back, undrafted rookie running back, and probably Taysom Hill, former Packer, running the ball a lot on Sunday. If the Packer run defense can't shut these guys down, then I don't know. Then I don't know that they're going to have a chance against anybody this year. Packer run defense has to be good on Sunday, and they must find a way to get Jordan Love some time with a inexperienced and at times ineffective left side of the line, which was going to be your strength with Bakhtiari and Jenkins over there at the beginning of the year. It's already week three, and we're talking about a totally different left side of that line. If they cannot protect or open holes on the ground, it is going to be a tough day against a pretty good Saints defense. This is a pure coin flip game to me. It seems like these two teams match up pretty well, and the line would suggest that too. Hopefully the Packers can come out, open things up a bit, get the ball out quickly, find a way to get A.J. Dillon incorporated, and if they get a lead... Hopefully they learn from last week and can find a way to get to the finish line. Home opener this weekend in Lambeau Field. All right, let's make some picks. Here comes the money. Here we go. Money talks. Here comes the money. Never tell me the odds. If someone gives you 10,000 to 1 on anything, you take it. That's a cool G, Daddy. Oh, now you got to let it ride. Two and two last week, five and five on the year. I've got three college and three NFL for you this week. 
We are going to go with, at 11 a.m. on Saturday, number three Florida State, who played an uninspiring game against Boston College on the road, a game they were favored by 30 points. They won by two. They escaped by the skin of their teeth on Saturday. They've got the Heisman candidate, Jordan Travis, at quarterback. Clemson has been the cream of the crop in the ACC. They've beaten Florida State, I don't know how many years in a row. This feels like a changing of the guard. I think the Dabo era at Clemson is starting to fall off, and it has been now for a year or two, even though they've been very good in ACC conference play. In terms of putting them where they were, where they were beating Alabama in national title games and things like that, they've fallen a step or two. This feels like a passing of the torch. Florida State's going to come in, the number three team in the country, I think, and put it on Clemson and try to make a statement that this is back to a Florida State conference. And it's minus two. A win by a field goal. I think they're going to win this game by 10 points. We'll see. It's early game. That's my only concern. Florida State minus two at Clemson. I'm going to take Notre Dame. That's the other marquee matchup. Notre Dame is at home against Ohio State. Ohio State a three-point favorite on the road. Ohio State 3-0. Notre Dame 4-0. I love the quarterback at Notre Dame. Notre Dame, to me, has played a tougher schedule so far. I could see OSU winning this game by four touchdowns. But given what we've seen from Notre Dame and the transfer quarterback and their 4-0, I am going to take Notre Dame and the points at home, plus three and a half at home. Then I am going to take Iowa on the road at Penn State. Did you see? I won't be able to find it. There is Ference's son is the offensive coordinator in Iowa, and there were rumors before the year that Kirk has him – what was the threshold? He wants 25 points a game. For however many years, the Iowa offense has been the Achilles heel, no disrespect to Aaron Rodgers, has been the Achilles heel of the Iowa program. Their defense is always a top-ranked defense in all of college football. The offense is the one that's given them problems where they're not scoring even 15 or 20 points a game consistently. The rumor was in the offseason that the challenge is to score 25 points a game, and if they don't do that, they're going to make a change at offensive coordinator. They have been better offensively, but... The Ference's kid addressed those rumors, I think it was on Wednesday or Thursday, and he basically said, I know you guys have had fun with the 25-point-per-game rumor, but if I'm not mistaken, we scored 40 this past Saturday, so maybe you can clam out of my butt for a little bit. Basically, that's what he said. He used other words. It did make me laugh, though. Iowa offense has been better. Their defense always plays. Penn State is a top-10 team for a reason. I was catching 14-and-a-half on the road. I that half point hook, man. I can't avoid it because <laughs> in my mind, oh, they can lose by two touchdowns and still cover. That half point hook is such a trap, and I'm falling right into it. Iowa plus fourteen at Penn State, and then in the NFL, I have the Patriots zero and two in need of a win at New York, taking on the Jets. Patriots defense. Mac Jones has his problems. That defense is good, and Zach Wilson is bad. Patriots are minus two and a half. I'll take them to win by a field goal at New York. Seattle minus six at home against Carolina. I feel like the Seahawks got back on track with the overtime winning week two in Detroit. Carolina's bad. They're bad, bad, bad. Bryce Young is bad. The offensive line is bad. Not saying he can't be good. I mean, at some point, you think you'll see flashes of why he was the number one pick. Frank Reich, to me, has proven nothing as a head coach in the NFL. The offensive line's bad. The top skill guy they have right now, Miles Sanders and Adam Thielen. I mean, that's how you're going to get a rookie quarterback? (laughs) I don't know. They're just not good. I am taking the Seahawks to win by seven at home against a rookie quarterback and a bad skill set in Carolina. And then I'm taking the Cowboys. They've made us money each of the first two weeks. They're minus 12 and a half, which is a big nut to crack at Arizona. Arizona actually took money from us last week. They covered the four and a half against the Giants despite losing after being up 28 to seven. Cowboy defense is, I think, the best in football right now. 
I just don't see how Arizona scores points here. I'm not saying the Cowboys are going to have some offensive explosion and win 40 to nothing like they did in week one, although the defense scored a lot of points for them in week one. I just don't see how Arizona puts two touchdowns up in this game, and for that reason, I think the Cowboys win by two scores. Minus 12.5 at Arizona. Seahawks minus 6 at home against Carolina. New England minus 2.5 at New York, and then in college, Florida State minus 2 at Clemson. Notre Dame plus 3.5 against Ohio State at home, and Iowa plus 14.5 at Penn State. When we come back on Monday, hopefully a victory Monday, and hopefully we're talking about a Brewer Division Championship and a first Big Ten win for Luke Fickle. We'll see you on Monday's podcast. Have a happy, safe weekend. We'll chat with you then.